Hello and welcome to Navara FM, broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's favourite radio station, a pulsating aural lifeline, snaking subversively through London's ever greyer, ever more arid circuits of capital accumulation. To bring you art, music and politics through the vibrations of your aerial or the digital crackle of your computer speakers, I'm James Butler. And I'm joined in the studio this week by two phenomenal guests, both experts on housing and inequality, two issues which coil around each other and seem inseparable. The first is Dawn Foster, a writer and a journalist, now Guardian columnist, whose record of journalistic work has covered unremittingly the sharp end of austerity, its very real human effects, and the ongoing failures of governments past and present to adequately provide for those who have the least. She's also the author of Lean Out, a brilliant polemic against neoliberal feminism, and you can find a discussion of that work in the navaramedia.com archive. My second guest, in the studio is Danny Dorling, Professor of Human Geography at the University of Oxford and prominent expert commentator on the housing crisis, as well as an almost terrifyingly prolific author on a wide range of related topics. The book with the most impact on what we'll be talking about today is probably All That Is Solid, a compact and comprehensive survey of the housing crisis, which out, I think, a couple of years ago. Uh, welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Anyone walking in any major city in Britain today can't help notice the increase in street homelessness year on year. It's true in London. It would have been true, hopefully, to anyone who was down in Brighton for the Labour Party conference. Um, I, know it's, uh, I know it's true in other cities across Britain. It was true when I was in Manchester recently. And we know also that hidden homelessness is an issue. It's on the rise. Um, and that's only one part of the housing crisis. Uh, we have problems of quality, safety, security of tenure. Uh, 1.4 million struggle to pay their mortgages. Shelter say a quarter of parents cut, cut back on clothing or food in winter to balance rent or mortgage payments alongside things like energy. I'm sure the examples could multiply. But it's not just about prices. prices. What does the current crisis look like in housing, Dawn? <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinarily complex and it's been complex for a while. I think it's become a lot more complex after the 14th of June when the Grenfell Tower fire happened. And I think one of the things that really shocked people about the about Grenfell was exactly how much everything that's wrong with housing was distilled in one, one small kind of uh, area, but one massive, massive disaster. So obviously a lot of it was the fact that people felt un undervalued because of their tenure. It was uh, mostly kind of council rented. Uh, there were, I think, 12, lease 12 leaseholders in, in total who were privately rented. But obviously the problem with Grenfell was that it was refurbished and people complained over and over again about the safety issues. They complained that they weren't taken seriously. They were, you know, when you speak to people about what happened during the refurbishment, they were ignored um, or often, you know, uh, treated very, very badly by uh, both the tenant management organisation, the council and the contractors. And obviously it led to a massive fire and a massive, massive loss of life. And I think it really brought everybody's attention to the massive inequality that we have in housing, especially in big cities. Obviously, I live in London, Danny lives in Oxford. Uh, both cities have the same issues, which is that rent is too high, uh, house prices are too high, and there's you know almost no social housing left as a result of the 80s, which I'm sure Danny could tell us about. <laughs> uh, we, we did. <laughs> oh, it's, it's worth going back and remembering 
yeah, at the very beginning of the 80s, we had uh, quite incredible housing provision compared to what had happened before. Uh, governments had been building council housing in the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. Uh, we had new laws that said you had rights to be housed if you were homeless. They came in in the 70s. Uh, we got down to really low levels of homelessness, street homelessness in the 70s. I, when I was growing up, we only saw a few old men on the streets, the remainders of the tramps. Uh, and then in the 80s, a new government came in. Uh, that government began by taking away rights from children. Uh, so that 16 and 17-year-olds lost their benefits, and for the first time we suddenly saw children on the streets again, and homelessness rose. Now, street homelessness then went down again, it went up again. It went down a bit under new Labour, and it's shot up since 2010. So more than doubled. More than since, doubled. Yeah. So you, the kind of thing that's has shocked people recently is seeing people on the streets with all their possessions with them. That That's new. Mm. The danger of all of this is that you become used to it. People adapt very quickly and become used to seeing people on the streets. Uh, so recently I was at a school, and I was talking about homelessness, and I was talking about how we could have a society in which there weren't people on the streets. And one of the children said, well, that's not possible. You'll always have homeless people on the streets. Because that child had always seen homeless mm. people on the streets in Britain. I mean, it's it's striking the the difference in, in the worlds in which people grow up. I have a, a very strong memory of, of what is now the big IMAX cinema by Waterloo Station, mm. which used to be, when I was a kid, Cardboard City, or just the mm. aftermath of Cardboard City, really. It's begun to be cleared out, really, when I was sort of small kid but that you know i it, the presence of homelessness in sort of the very you know very late 80s and early 90s mm. uh if, if you're if you were growing up in london it was very very visible um and i'd like to think it it was a bit more scandalous than it was now um i mean i suppose the other thing with with homelessness that struck me when i was in manchester was the the mm. in, you know the inter interrelation between that and uh, kind of drug problems, uh, which were yeah. very, very striking on the streets there. And I'd heard about it, but actually seeing it in person was actually, you know, quite, quite shocking. But it doesn't seem to me that that either this stuff, either the kind of spike in 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 homelessness or the aftermath of Grenfell, seems to have produced much movement on the in, no. in the government no i mean obviously we had the housing bill um i think maybe a year year and a half ago now and it was pretty toothless it basically said that you know it would take away grant it would just you know i mean it didn't really say very much uh the government came out and said that they were gonna you know try and solve the housing crisis with it all it actually did was try and cement what that just started in the 80s so it looked at trying to introduce right to buy for housing associations and it doesn't look like that's going to happen now it looked at trying to force councils to sell off high value council housing mm. and when you actually look at what that means obviously the government refused to actually get into the details of it but it looked as though what they were essentially saying was that if if uh, you know a tenant died or moved out of a property in london because of the you know market value they would have to sell those properties and that money doesn't go to the council, it goes back to the Treasury, which has been one of the big problems in right to buy over and over again. Mm. And I think that, you know, I think that it's impossible to overeg just how much right to buy has contributed to the big problem we have with homelessness. Um, you know, homelessness, but also house prices. Mm. I mean, I was in Manchester recently for the Conservative Party conference, which nobody should ever go to. <laughs> and Exactly as you said, like there was, there was a massive, massive drug problem. And every time you saw people, um, I spoke to about four different people and, you know, tried to see if they needed medical attention. And on the first day of conference, I, you know, a quite 
every day I was talking about housing on different panels. And on the first day, people seemed really concerned about it. And then by the third day, people just accepted it. And it was incredible how quickly that happened and how all my friends in Manchester just accepted that homelessness was a big problem and that, mm. you know, no, as, as Danny said, nobody seemed to think it was solvable anymore. Whereas mm. at least in London, I think, I've had quite a few friends recently say they've been shocked by street homelessness. So a lot of people have said that, you know, as in the past with Cardboard City, they're suddenly seeing people not just, you know, sat on the street with the sign, but actually, you know, building kind of, um, I mean, I was in uh, Finsbury Park recently, went underneath a railway bridge and saw two people with you know, abandoned sofas that they that they kind of set up as their homes. Uh, one thing we forget is that uh, the Conservative Party and the Conservative government uh, partly idolise America. Uh, they think that Britain has a state which is too big. We intervene too much in housing. It should all be run by the private sector. And they want our society to be more American. And if you go over to America, it's one of the few places in the rich world you can go to where the homelessness problem is worse than in Britain. That is what they actually want. Uh, they, want a, they want a society in which if you don't do well, if you fail, the penalty is you end up on the streets. It's an incentive to try hard. They think it's okay to have people sleeping in their cars. That mm. is why they like the United States. And it's a big, big mistake to think that the government actually cares that much about people who are poor and people who are poorly housed. I think there is one thing that's shifting at the moment, though, which is, you know, I got it from Tory Party conference. There was some of it in Theresa May's speech. So when I went to conference, um, obviously, Labour, Labour conference, people talked a lot about Grenfell Tower. They talked about the need for social housing. They talked about the need for everyone to be adequately and safely housed and securely housed. You went to the Conservative Party conference and all anybody spoke about was the fact that the housing crisis meant that they were losing voters. So anybody under 45 has abandoned the Conservative mm. Party. It was incredible being at a Labour Party conference and realising that as a 30-year-old, I wasn't classed as young. When I went to the Tory Party conference, I realised I'm going to be young for another 15 years. <laughs> and they were all panicking because they realised that because, you know, anybody under 45 either can't afford to buy a house or can barely afford to, you know, their rent. And a lot of people realised that their children won't be able to, you know, afford to rent or buy. And everyone started panicking. Everyone started abandoning the Conservative Party. And they realised that, there's almost no way to solve this without people who've made a huge amount of money and have a lot of assets in their home taking the hit. Yeah. So we saw, you know, the before Theresa May's incredibly disastrous speech from hell, um, she, you know, the press officers came out and they said it's going to be really, really big housing announcements. Mm. It's going to be incredible. Like It's going to be the biggest housing announcement we've ever seen. And she, you know, she came out and said they were going to build what, 20,000 houses. Yeah. Which and is now they say nothing. there might be one in the budget, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, um, but when you looked at it, it was almost nothing. So yeah. the Conservative yeah. Party have taken away all this grant because, you know, to stop councils from building. And councils are really the only people who can, who can build in volume you know um the private sector aren't going to because the less they build the more money they can make mm. by cutting their supply but the conservative party are panicking because they realize that people need to be housed but in order to actually house people properly you need to bring house prices down and then your conservative yeah. base abandon you because they've lost money so i think i mean there's a familiar story on the left about the way in which housing has been central to the development of the economy and the sort of changes in capitalism in Britain, especially over the course of the past 30, 40 years, um, which is all to do with the sort of um, right to buy and the kind of acquisition of, of what used to be publicly uh, or commonly owned, uh, you know, to, and uh, it, that slippage into the private sector, the kind of 
Tory fetish mm. for so-called property-owning democracy. <laughs> um, and then that, that story of the kind of rise of the development, uh, the developers and the rise of the rentiers. Um, we know that story, I guess, quite, quite well. Um, one of the things I'm quite interested in, though, is the way in which that story can sometimes homogenise the way in which housing uh, has developed across Britain. So I, I'm, I wonder if, if there's, there's something interesting to say about uh, the variation between uh, housing provision in, in different cities. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that's happened is that the provision of social housing in more affluent areas has disappeared uh, completely. So when people fall on hard times in a more affluent area, they have to leave, mm. uh, which means they move in the southwest, they move towards Plymouth, in the home counties, they move towards Oxford. It's the only place where you've got mm. a chance, although the home hostels are being closed down. They move towards Birmingham, they move towards Manchester in the north, mm. and they move into London. Um, and part of the blindness of Conservative MPs is that the problems of homelessness in their own constituencies are actually relatively low because you have to leave. And so you've had this concentration uh, in particular parts of the country. The other thing which has happened, which is as bad as the right to buy, is the inflation of the prices of basic modern homes. Mm. Uh, and that uh, creates a problem for a much larger tier of society uh, who can't buy these homes. If they do manage to buy these homes, they're, they're never going to increase in value much more because there's nobody who can buy them at, you know, <laughs> twice the value that they would buy them now. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of reached the end of the line. But the big, big problem for the Conservatives is that to get their 40% of support in the electorate, they rely on a lot of people believing that these assets are actually worth what they're told they're hmm. worth. Um, that somehow they're going to be able to pass these or keep them in the family. They're going to be able to sell them. They're going to be able to rent out and exploit younger people so they can go on cruise holidays in their old age. <laughs> that's that's a conservative promise. That's the English dream. Mm. But it's incredible now when you look at exactly what's happening. So you know, we talk a lot about the fact that people my age can't afford to buy a house. I mean, I probably wasn't ever going to anyway because of my social background. But even my kind of more affluent friends, my friends who come from not, you know much better backgrounds than me and earn a lot more because they've you know, gone into different fields, they can't afford to buy homes. But equally, nobody I know has a pension. Most people I know aren't in secure jobs. They're working as freelancers. They're working on zero-hours contracts. Um, I think there's been a massive kind of, you know, we've just become a massive precariat and we don't have we can't afford to buy our own home so you know for ages a lot of people felt that it didn't matter too much if they didn't have a great pension because they'd ha they had assets in their home if they needed mm. to they could sell the home and kind of pay for care and help their kids out but what happens when no, nobody it, has it, anything it becomes increasingly clear to more and more of the population that you need a decent high quality rental sector which is what most of Europe manages to achieve, but mm. not the United States, <laughs> it becomes obvious that your pensions, A, you can't get them, but even if you get them, they're not safe. I am in the university superannuation scheme, supposedly the safest big pension scheme in the country. We were okay. What are we doing? We just had a consultative ballot on whether we go on strike because turns out our pension scheme mm. is not going to work. So I obviously, to, I spoke to two MPs who are my age who said that they, you know, that they pay a lot of money into the pension and they think they're not going to get it. So mm. yeah. So and, and but the great thing about this is this spreading out amongst popular. Now clearly, somebody in my position, age, I am fine, right? But I have children and I cannot see how they will be housed. Yeah. And if I can't see how my children are going to be housed, and I am a professor at the University of Oxford, this. This kind of myth that we're all okay or some of us are okay stops 
working. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is going to happen to the birth rate? Because most people I know would probably like to start having kids around about now, can't do it because they're still in shared accommodation. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think it will affect the birth rate? What do you think it will actually do to Britain in the future? Um, well, I mean, the, the birth rate in Britain is currently about 1.8, so it is fairly high uh, for Europe. People do still manage uh, mm. to have children, but it's the middle class who are really putting mm. off, and they're delaying birth now into early 40s, and they're agonising about it. <laughs> uh, they're absolutely agonising. People who've got good jobs, everything else has gone well, and they can't do what my parents could do and what everybody else's parents could do back in the 1970s. You could all get yourself a little house, free bed, you know, in Cowley and Oxford, it cost my <laughs> mum and dad four hundred pounds. Um, you, 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 we're going to put we're, we're gonna put babies in chests of drawers like the olden days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess so. For me, this is one of the confusing things actually. If if you're kind of attempting to think from the perspective of of capital, which is that presumably you want workers. Right. So you, you need yeah. people to reproduce. But you also want workers who are capable of spending. Right. So it's an mm. obvious Keynesian point. Right. That you want workers with a disposable income because you need to stimulate demand. So if you have rentiers who are essentially kind of parasitic sector of the economy, yeah. uh, creaming off a vast amount um, of, of well, income. Well, then... no, no. I mean, there, there is kind of Empire 2.0. So Empire 2.0, the plan is we will carry on bringing some people into the country, but we'll bring them in as guest workers, which means mm. they're not allowed to have children. We don't need the people in Britain to consume that much because we're going to sell to the world. We're going to sell to India. We're Inno going to sell to the... jams and pig yeah. yes. Now, But this, <laughs> this, this honestly is the plan of people who want to make the UK the Singapore of the West. Singapore relies on guest workers, 100,000 Filipino maids who are pregnancy tested every three months and cannot have children. Now, I don't think we're going to get there in Britain. No. But if you're wondering... But is this a serious thing that people are thinking about in policy world? <laughs> that's, what, that's what the Brexit group is about. It is, a, it is about cutting off from the European model of actually, you know, caring for your population somewhat. That, that's why we have student loans and fees that are massive. It's, it's about only helping a few winners and everybody else doesn't deserve to have very much. You can bring in your workers from abroad when you need them. You don't need people consuming... Uh, too much in, in London. What you need are people willing to empty the bins in your hotels and to change the sheets and so on. And you can find those people somewhere in the world to come and do that. I mean, it just seems so utterly short-sighted. Every time I try and talk about why council housing is important, you know, it's a very, very simple economic argument. So at the moment, I pay my rent to a private landlord. I don't know what he does with it. But if I paid my rent to the council, the council would reinvest it. They would build more homes. They would put more services in. And at the moment, we have a huge housing benefit bill that is paid to private landlords. And that money doesn't kind of come back into circulation for the most part. And instead, people are spending huge amounts of money. You know, loads and loads of people are spending almost half their income on rent. And we've heard, you know, today they came out and said that consumer spending was down and that everybody's worried again. We've also, uh, I think, you know, Philip Hammond said he'd lost, how much was it down back in the sofa? <laughs> oh, half a trillion. <laughs> yeah. Soon adds up to real money, doesn't it? Mm. Um, I, I guess, I guess, like, there are two questions that, that occur to me here. One is, because we're talking about kind of global models, thinking about these stuff. It, whether Britain has a particularly weird culture about renting, because it, it, you know there, there seems to be much less of a concern about it elsewhere in Europe, certainly. Mm. Um, and the second question is 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 about what 
the explanation is, and we're going to come on to talk about rent controls in a moment. One of the things that people say is that, oh, it's just a stock shortage. So once we build, <sighs> we can solve all of the problems oh, yeah. and we don't yeah. need to talk about accumulation or capital or anything. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Dawn, you look aggrieved. I get so fed up of people <laughs> trying to say that the only issue is the lack of stock. It's not remotely. It's all about tenure. If we build kind of, you know, like a million little kind of one bed kind of you know uh weird flats in the in those big glassy towers by Vauxhall then it's not going to change anything but if I mean one thing that we're desperate for is family homes and nobody wants to build family homes because you don't make as much profit Mm. and I mean I live you know near Clapham um near near Nine Elms and it's incredible that I quite like walking home sometimes from central London because you walk past all of these towers and it's really quite eerie because they're you know it's saturday night people should be in and it's black like there are no lights on nobody lives there they've all been bought and they're completely empty and obviously you know Mm. people have come in they've built the stock that apparently we need but who's bought it it's not it's not families it's no we're beginning to learn i was in cambridge last night and i was with the former head of the council at cambridge and cambridge is seen as a very successful council because it's built an enormous amount of housing Mm. what's actually happened the price has gone up and the price of land has gone up in Cambridge, right? The housing hasn't actually become cheaper. Housing doesn't work by the laws of supply and demand. Mm. It really doesn't. It's not that kind of a good. Uh, If you want to make housing affordable, you actually have to decree it is going to be affordable and you have to get the rents down and you have to have rent regulation, which is what they have across Europe. Mm. Uh, If you don't want house prices to rise up and up and up again, you can either rely on house price crashes every so often, but that's dangerous, or you tax wealth and you tax capital gains in such a way that you don't get housing speculation. And the experts on this are the Germans. Uh, And they did this because they had terrible speculation in the 1930s. So German chancellors try really hard to make sure you don't get inflation in house prices in Germany. And that helps people decide you only buy a house in Germany if you like doing DIY and you want to do it up. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, you rent. We have had the opposite in Britain. When George Osborne was Chancellor, his priority was housing. He spent more on housing than anything else and helped to buy in various schemes mm. to help the price rise mm. as much as possible because he saw high house prices in England and in London as a sign of economic success. The most successful city on the planet is the city with the highest house prices. That is the economic logic that was behind George Osborne's policies. He wasn't stupid enough to say that publicly, (laughs) but he didn't lament the high prices. He also, of course, and his friends benefited from this. But it wasn't just that. They weren't just being greedy. They have a philosophy that says economic success is getting more money. The higher up it goes, the better it is. And if you can't afford to live there, bad luck you. The market is telling you not to be there. At the moment, I mean, I, I I checked last year, I haven't checked recently, but I think last time I looked, uh, housing was 12% of GDP. Yeah. And all of the growth since the crash was in house prices. Mm. And that's not a good economic model. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, when, when, when I'm thinking about kind of policy problems is... You know, it seems to me that the, the the gamble in the British economy is is that hopefully house prices won't crash because otherwise we're all really really screwed. I'm not screwed. Yeah. I don't have any money. So no, exactly. <laughs> Danny screwed. We're not. <laughs> but I'm not screwed because I have children, and in fact, you know, it's actually it's actually <laughs> well, they weren't the problem. Like if I had one, if I had one child, 
uh, and the price of the, of the house I'm in rose and rose, mm. then theoretically my one child could be okay in a very nasty future country. Mm. But I happen to have you know more than one child. So even in the case of people like me who actually have a mortgage and feasibly I might actually pay it off in my 60s, this is the time I will be paying it off, <laughs> even for me it is in my interest for house prices to begin yeah. to fall. I want to talk about rent controls because these have been uh, in the press a lot recently and they were a feature of the Labour manifesto and they were also featured very strongly in the leader's speech at uh, Labour Party conference. So there, there has been massive reaction in the press about it, um, including from bodies like the Association for Landlords and uh, no. the Institute for Economic Affairs, which is, of course, a shadowy uh, organization oh, with very obscure you, funding that nobody knows. Nobody knows where their money comes from, but I'm willing to bet most of its funders own several properties. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's a, there's been a lot of kind of objection to the idea that that um, any kind of rent cap uh, could, could be imposed, or that, that the consequences thereof would be very very dangerous. Now, the Labour Manifesto talks about kind of three year tenancies as standard, mm. um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, a freeze in, uh, or not a freeze, but a very carefully controlled rate of uh, uh, rise, rise between sort of yeah. year on year. So uh, that is a relatively modest form of rent mm. cap, actually, mm. or, or kind of intervention in the housing market. Um, and then in uh, the leader's speech at Labour Party conference, Jeremy Corbyn seemed to go further. He seemed to say that actually uh, he would step beyond that and institute some sort of pricing control um, mm on the rental market itself. And so obviously there's lots of kind of control cap, like, you know, that you can cap things, you can cap the increase, you can mm. freeze or even uh, decree a kind mm. of reduction um, across the board uh, and undercut sort of current market rates. Yeah. There's an enormous number of things you can do. And the great thing is that apart from a few really extremely odd landlords, they're not going to demolish the buildings. No, I mean, th- th- this is what I find incredible. Over and over again, every single time rent controls are mentioned, people come out and say, well, if we have rent controls, people won't rent, you know, rent people. I mean, if I turn around to you and say, do you want do you want £100? And you say yes. And then I say, oh, sorry, actually, it's £98. You aren't going to say, actually, I'd rather have nothing. Mm. It's £100 or nothing. If yeah. you say, actually, you're going to have to ha- you know, have a little bit less, you'll still take that money. And in all these European countries, in the Netherlands and in Germany and in France and in Austria and in Scandinavia, people carry on building houses for mm. rent where there is rent control. And they don't just build houses and flats, they build high-quality ones with good sound in- installation and <laughs> enough space to start a family where there is rent controls. Where there is not rent controls, which is here, people will build these shabby little towers of accommodation for single professionals. Um, it, it's so obvious that rent regulation gets you good housing uh, the, what you've got to ask is how on earth have we ended up with a set of economists mm. who've actually believed what they were taught in the 80s and 90s? They were taught that rent regulation creates slums. That was in yeah. our economic textbooks yeah. in Britain and in the United States. And this has a historical uh, justification, right? Because it's the the kind of po- the sort of uh, right up until what is it? It's sort of right until post-war. The the argument is is that rent yields crashed when they were regulated, and therefore you know the landlords just uh, left. Well, we used to we, okay. we used to have lots and lots of slums. We had slums in the Victorian era. You know, many slums at the First World War. We got our first rent controls in with rent strikes in the First World War. Um, we also helped replace slums with good quality uh, social housing and council housing. The rents came down in the private sector. The private sector became smaller and smaller and smaller. It's now 
becoming enormous again. One in three families with children are in the private rented mm. sector, which means that the kids are moving schools on average every three years in London. Mm. I mean, the disastrous effects on society are, are quite incredible. Um, the rent controls in Britain, which, which went all the way from the First World War through to the 1970s, coincided with improvements of housing standards that we have never seen before at that kind of a rate. Once we got rid of the rent controls in the 1980s, that's when we began to see quality of housing uh, diminish, not being repaired, and the right to buy as soon as people actually the right to buy and sell it onto a landlord. Landlord does nothing to the property mm. because it's not worth it uh, for themselves. We begin to see overcrowding um, because you just survive in any way you can, whereas under social housing, housing is allocated by need. You're put into the accommodation that fits your family. Mm. One reason we have such a problem now in Britain is that we're using the market mechanism to allocate housing. And that means if you've got a lot of money, you can have a very big house and you can have it mainly empty. Uh, that doesn't work because space is finite. You can't let people have lots and lots of space in London and then ask, how come other people can't fit into London? You know, it's a jigsaw puzzle. And you sort out this jigsaw puzzle by having good and fair housing policies. You don't leave it to the market. It goes very badly wrong. I have to say, I really, really enjoyed that period when Jeremy Corbyn and Labour came out and uh, called for requisitioning of houses in Kensington. <laughs> that was very nice. That was really That was pleasant. deeply, deeply enjoyable. But it's one of those things... I, I've really, really enjoyed this about the Labour Party in the last year. Every single time Jeremy Corbyn comes out with, a, with an idea, you know, the press, the Conservatives go absolutely ballistic and say, this is wild, this is communist, this is unbelievable. And you go poll everybody and say, actually, the public support mm, this. It's mm. brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's striking. I was searching for stuff on, on sort of rent controls and rent caps um, yesterday. And I, I came across an article from City AM, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic, like <laughs> really paper, yeah. like really mm. kind of the capitalist class talking to itself. Um, and it's back from when Ed Miliband proposed um, a quite a very very modest mm. form of rent rent pricing intervention. Um, <laughs> and he claims that well, you know, landlords like to keep rents low for their good tenants, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and and you know, and, and that they wouldn't be able to do repairs and stuff like that. So my sense is that this argument they definitely is, do repairs yeah, now. Well, exactly. Well, the trick to repairs uh, is you simply give tenants the right to make repairs themselves and take it off the rent. Mm. And, the, and you extend the tenancy so they can't be evicted. Yeah. In Germany, you have to buy your tenants out if you want yeah. them to leave. You actually have to mm. bribe them. And they don't have to go unless they think the amount of money they're being offered is enough. You end up with tenants then refitting the kitchens mm. and doing whatever else they want because they feel secure with their home. It's yeah. their home. It's not the landlord's home. It is their home. So one of the objections that's raised beyond this is is to say that in cities like, say, Stockholm, it's sometimes actually very difficult to find an apartment to get on the tenancy, so yeah. it encourages a kind of grey market in, in housing. Is there a way to, to avoid that in terms of kind of housing yeah. policy? Yeah, not always that it's Nirvana. And the prices in Stockholm are high, not quite as high as in London, though. Um, there's lots of ways in which you avoid a, a grey market. You, you bring in regulation, you actually inspect properly, you check what's going on. Mm. It's not just Stockholm. Uh, in the city of Oxford, if you ask a PhD student where they live, they'll tell you they're sharing with one other PhD student. If you ask them a bit more, they'll tell you about the other two who are living illegally in the house. Mm. And that is how Oxford is housed yeah. for DPhil students in the city I live in. Uh, what was I going to say? <laughs> just outrage. Um, yeah, so I, I I was looking at reports on on what landlords say they would do um, in the case of uh, introduction of various forms of, of 
uh, rental policy. It's very difficult to predict this, right? Because yeah. well, um, well, well, the key, key don't think of landlords as, as a human. unified set of people. No, no, no. It'd be um, most people are renting from a small set of landlords who own many, many properties. Two mm-hmm. percent of the population are landlords, yeah, aren't they? It's just two percent. But most of that two percent are only renting out one or two properties mm. badly. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're doing. Mm. It's like thinking you can set up your own school. You know, we, okay, probably some people do that. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't think, oh, I can set up my own hospital. Mm-hmm. But people think and are encouraged to think that they can become a landlord and it's something you can do and it's easy. And then they start complaining about tenants and they don't pay the rent or whatever and I've got to fix things. Um, most landlords are not doing that well. They have one property and they're handling it really badly. But for most tenants, that's not their landlord. For most tenants, they're dealing with these large-scale landlords who are fairly vicious. They make sure mm. that they don't fix anything because that's taken away from their profit margin. Yeah. Mm. Um, they make sure that they say, they serve you an eviction notice often when you first enter the property. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of behavior. Yeah. But land- landlords vary. They're also politically a very vicious group. They will be sending me emails after this goes out. <laughs> I get it every time. Yeah. Um, they seriously feel that they're a benefit to society and that any intervention on them is terrible and uncalled for. And they they viciously hate the idea that, that we sh- they should be regulated because it's their land. It's not our land. It's not our homes. It's their homes. Um, I looked up a 2015 report from the University of Cambridge which said only in the case of a reduction of rental rates, a, de- a decree on the reduction of rental rates to two-thirds of current rates, would you see you know, 40-50% of landlords saying, oh, well, I would sell up uh, all of my stuff immediately. And, and indeed, the authors of the report note, in fact... But if they sell up, the house doesn't disappear. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it seems an odd threat. And, and if they sell up, then the person who would try and buy the house would buy one that they fit into yeah because if you're spending your own money you don't unless you've got a ridiculous amount of money you don't buy something that's far too big for you one sad thing you can look at council estates across london now where there are signs that say no no ball games because there used to be lots of children Mm. in the maisonettes and now the maisonettes often have a single professional rather than him and her and two kids Mm. and that single professional wasn't particularly happy that single professional was thinking i should be in a nicer house than this um but the children aren't there anymore Mm. One of the things that's quite striking in reading this report is that they say, look, you know, it it is impossible to predict any impact on house building from rent controls, but it doesn't look very likely that it would have anything more than a very, very marginal effect. Um, We've never had house prices higher and our builders are not building. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) what do you need to convince you that, that, you know, the market will not provide the houses, and if it does provide houses, it doesn't provide the right ones in the right places at the right price. I can't decide with the Conservative Party whether they are genuinely stupid or just deliberately ignorant, Mm. because it seems unbelievably clear to me, um, you know, and everybody I know, that if you leave it to the market, then they won't build because, you know, the more that if they build a lot, the price might come down. So they're not going to do that. And you have Theresa May saying that she's going to get tough with house builders. She's going to bring them into number 10, tell them to build more. It's like, what, what are they going to build family homes that are affordable? Of course they're not. Because the Conservatives, you know, when they came in in 2010, they decided to change the definition of affordability, which was mm. incredible. It's, you know, like deciding that, that, that you're going to call the sky the moon instead. I don't know. Yeah. But so now, you know, according to government policy the definition of affordability is 80% of market yeah. you know, rate 
I mean, I, it was really, really striking when I was I was reading something for, complaining that uh, you know that that investors were buying up you know some of these uh, mm. uh, you know affordable houses, and they were saying that you know these four hundred and fifty thousand pound starter <laughs> classes. Like, yeah. yeah. There's a conservative that, MP yeah. who um, he 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 got his wife to buy a help to buy yeah, property, yeah, and she's like in her fifties, and you yeah. know it was, it was the first time she'd bought a house. That's the reason why. why Grenfell's had such an effect on the debate is that is where it was because it's mm, in Kensington. Yeah. Now this is the only London borough where the number of people living there fell between the last two censuses. Um, so you we have increasing amounts of empty property in that uh, borough, and it's a realization that this is going on. The lights are out at night. Mm. You don't see anybody living in these places. Um, and now this will eventually even get into the conscious of Conservative MPs. Uh, part of the reason why they believe in the market so much is that in the 70s it was possible to make an argument, a theoretical argument, that if you left the market to itself it would sort everything out. Mm. And they tried that in the 80s. This was a long time ago. We've now done the experiment, we've seen the results, and the result is bad. But the, but the people who joined the Conservative Party back then in the 80s, they're now ministers and prime ministers, they've believed this all their life. Mm. So that generation are unlikely to alter their core beliefs about how they think the world works but one of the things that, that i guess is has been striking about this debate is is the intervention of shelter and shelter have said mm. oh you know we worry that housing market shock will eject people into homelessness yeah. you know oh and so maybe we can just beef up yeah. uh, tenant rights instead this is part of shelter but it's interesting you can watch shelter you can watch the child poverty action group lots of these organizations which were particularly radical in the 70s and 80s <laughs> have along with british politics stepped to the right as yeah. the labor party did as the conservative party did i mean the conservative party went so far to the right that the european conservative parties ejected it and it had to cozy up with the polish law and justice party we don't actually really have a conservative party we have a far right mm. party in britain um and i think you can explain shelter's slightly odd statement from how the politics in shelter Change because shelter tried to position itself in the middle of British politics. Mm. It's going to have to move back to what is normal in Europe for a housing campaigning group uh, to be like. And when you actually looked in the aftermath of Grenfell, obviously you looked at the board of shelter and you realised that the former head of uh, Kensington and Chelsea Council was the chair of the board, and another member of the board was the uh, was was a man who owned the company that sold the clad in that was on the outside of Grenfell mm. Tower. So you had two people who were, you know, who had some link or possibly some responsibility, the inquiry may find, for the Grenfell Tower fire. And they were on the board of a housing charity that was supposed to look at how we can make housing better for people, how people on the sharp end of housing can have better rights. And obviously, most people thought it was a big conf conflict mm. of interest. And clearly they did as well because they stood down quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, one of the central questions for me, I guess, is as, as we move... Um, beyond this now is is at what point this kind of conflict comes out into the open because I you know I was suggesting earlier that there will be a policy problem for, for I think for kind of social democrats as Labour looks like mm. it's close to power which is to say um, you know at some point this is a, a something that is deeply deep uh, you know a deeply same conflict in British society one is just simply an economic problem which is you know one of the hopes has been in Britain perennially, although it never seems to work, um, that you can fund a social democratic politics while leaving the housing market alone in order to <laughs> hopefully tax the people who have quite, quite significant incomes from rentierism. Um, but it seems that, to me, it goes deeper than that. Because, I mean, one of the things I think that is really 
that really comes across from reading both of your work is the way in which housing is it just enables social participation, right? So mm. housing security means security mm. elsewhere and that you can claim your rights. So, I, you know, I mean, the obvious, there's an obvious answer to the question of housing and inequality, which is that housing is central to it. Um, but, you know, are there specific measures we can take? Because it seems to me one of the big questions here is about inheritance. Yeah. Huge loopholes in inheritance tax, you know, trust ownership. Um, you know, I... You know, yeah. what can we do? <laughs> I think one thing you can do is build a huge amount of social housing. And one thing the Conservatives have tried to do is basically take away the inheritance that was in social housing. So, you know, my family grew up, you know, I grew up in a council home. And if my mum passes away, she can, you know, the tenancy, could, you know, could previously pass on to one of my siblings. And the Conservatives have taken that away. They've tried to really limit um, how long you can live in a, in a home. Whereas previously, you would move into social housing. And Lindsay Hanley is very, very good on this. She's, you know, her, her book Estates is fantastic about this. Um, you, you would move into a council house and you would know that you were there and you were secure and your children would be happier. I mean, housing affects everything. It affects your health. It affects, you know, your attainment. It affects how, to, how, how well you do in your job. It affects everything. And it's also helped control the private market. So private landlords couldn't charge very, very high rents in the past because a council house mm. was better. Yeah. Um, and it also helps dampen down the prices in the, in the, the buy market. Because you're not going to spend that much on a house when you can get a decent quality council house nearby. Um, so this is why they really hated council housing. Mm. Um, because it was a buffer. It protected uh, people. It didn't make them fight each other and compete, which is what we now have. I want to pick up on your, your point, Dawn, about um, the effect on life chances. Because there's a really great pa paper um, by Karis Roberts and Matthew Lawrence at IPPR, the Institute mm. for Public Policy Research, just on wealth in the 21st century. And obviously, housing uh, is central to wealth in, in this country. Um, and, and they say that there's an asset effect on, on life chances, that if you have wealth, which is usually housing wealth mm. at, at 22, you, by the age of 33, you have greater participation in work, higher wages, good health, absence of depression, greater political agency. And they say also, which is a point that's obvious to us on the left, but it's assumed not to be the case on the right, that um, among successful entrepreneurs, the most common shared trait is not personality, but access to financial capital, often through gifts and inheritance. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I guess the other aspect of this for me is just, and it only became clear to me in the past year when I was speaking to someone doing research on land ownership, in the UK is just how much the ruling class of, of Britain <laughs> have persisted in their ownership of it. Like, it's just it's incredible. I mean, obviously, the Conservatives like to talk about social mobility, and I hate talking about social mobility because it's such a kind of you know, terrible, stupid, broken term. But it just perpetuates inequality mm. because I'm... You know, Nobody in my family owns their own home, so they're not going to pass it on to me. Um, I can carry on working and try and buy my own home, but you know, chances are I'm not going to do it because we've gotten to the point where the only way you can do that is with financial help from your parents. Um, and obviously, lots and lots of people, you know, have, have this, but a far you know greater number of people don't have it at all. And either you move outside of London, you move somewhere where there's no jobs, and you try and get a, you know um, a property there, but. We've gotten to the point where property is pretty much everything. Yeah. People are beginning to work out in their 30s, and particularly late 30s, that those of their friends who get on at work are those who inherit money from their parents and mm. let them buy a flat. And those people who don't get on are those who don't. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not about how good you are or how hard you work. It just happens to be how rich you are. Um, in cities like Oxford, for somebody coming into a job at a university, unless they have inherited wealth, they're going to have to rent. Mm. If you rent, you spend twice as much as on a mm. mortgage. You hang around for three years and then you leave. It's actually changing the nature of who teaches in my university. It changes the nature of all the schools in my cities. We have incredible turnover of teachers in the schools because they cannot afford uh, to buy and stay. The hospital, the John Radcliffe Hospital, has this enormous number, hundreds and hundreds of vacancies all the time. Mm. People working there for six months or a year and then giving up because the rent is bigger than their income. You can't run the city. You can't run the schools and the hospitals. You can't get the telephone systems working yeah. um, because it's. But what happens is we quietly accept it getting worse until it affects enough of us that we act. And then when it affects enough people, and somebody comes along and actually suggests doing something about it, which is what happened in May and June of this year, you see the biggest swing in the political opinion that's ever happened in Britain. It's never happened before in six or eight weeks that polls have moved that fast when somebody says we'll actually do something about it and we'll do something about your student debt as well (laughs) Uh, and people say oh politically that's impossible politically that moved public opinion faster than anything that's ever moved it before i mean do you worry about the polarization of the housing question i mean obviously a lot of people i know are you know becoming more and more um kind of open to the left-wing idea that we need more council housing, we need rent controls, etc. But at the same time, I see more and more people respond to articles I write, uh, me being on telly and saying these things by, you know, especially as a Grenfell, like the number of the number of people who tweeted me or emailed me and complained about the fact that people who were on low incomes lived in Kensington. And they honest, yeah. the sheer volume of people who contact me and say that if you can't afford to live in London without subsidy, you shouldn't live in London. Really, really, is really, really quite striking. And I don't understand how these people think a city should function. Mm. Um, I don't know who they think is going to, you know, drive their buses, uh, look after them when they have a heart attack and end up in hospital. But it just seems, uh, uh, it seems the, as if... The irony was that the people in that tower were actually doing jobs which were vital, whereas people elsewhere in Kensington are so rich they don't have to work at all. I mean, that, the irony of this, and you, you cannot make a city work by having people live dozens and dozens of miles out and come in by train in the morning. You can see it in New York. If, if you stand in New York Central Station at six in the morning, you can watch the people who come in and make New York work. But it doesn't make New York a nice place. Um, and it doesn't control housing prices. Yeah. So Manhattan is now completely unaffordable. So here's the question. We've looked forward to what might happen under a change of government. How, and this is a big question because there's, a, there's an ongoing conflict between uh, the changes happening in the Labour Party and the people who occupy Labour councils very often. Mm. There's also a problem, of course, with central government funding for councils, which just drops through the floor. Mm. What does good council effort look like now? Um, it looks under like May. <laughs> under May, yeah, um, isn't in Liverpool and Sheffield. Mm-hmm. So obviously there are lots of terrible, terrible Labour councils, um, but isn't in a quite good. So one thing that happened recently. So isn't isn't have a policy where instead of saying could you put a little bit of you know kind of affordable eighty percent market rate housing in, isn't and say. Um, that if you put forward planning, it should be 50% affordable and it should be properly affordable. But ideally, it should be as much as possible. And Islington took 
a developer to court because the developer refused to put that in. Uh, they want uh, they offered ten percent, and Islington said no, fifty. And they went to court, and they said twenty percent, and Islington said no, fifty. And Islington went, you know, won the court case, and they and the developer has been told that if they want to build it, it has to be fifty percent. And then you could, you know, so, so that's that. You know, Islington is quite wealthy and mm. but they're still you know pointing out the fact they need affordable housing people still need to live there and then you look at Liverpool and Sheffield and they're doing you know quite similar sort of things so Sheffield's trying to build more kind of properly affordable rent um, homes by working in partnership with housing associations but also some developers and then you look at Liverpool and you could look at the uh, Granby Four Streets project which took some empty homes and made them into good social homes for families and they renovated the Welsh streets and there's a lot of kind of really really good cooperative work going on so Home Baked yeah. is in the shadow of Anfield that's a really really good um, you know, cooperative you know, model for uh, a business that also works quite closely with the homes there so you can do it and, but, but it's and hard it will work. save I mean, money in will, the long term. And local councils really have tried, and they do. You know, in Oxford, we've got our first little development of eight hundred houses for thirty years, mm. um, but still, only forty of them are actually truly affordable. <laughs> um, well, there's a big nimbyism problem in Oxford, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who really don't want building near them, and especially building anywhere that has you know any greenery at all. Right? Oh yes, on the edge. Um, but that's short term. You, you get you get that, but when you begin to build, people then like it. Um, we forget about how we did this in the past. You know, how do we build Milton Keynes between Oxford and Cambridge? It's Newtown legislation. It's still sitting on the books. And if you want to do something dramatic about Oxford, you take a slice around the Ring Road, half a mile out, covers about two golf courses and lots of scrubland, and you make it to Newtown. And you use Newtown legislation to make sure that you build nice ecological houses without double garages, which is what the developers want to build, um, so that you don't get people commuting to London. And so that you don't have, in the case of Oxford, 40,000 people driving over the Greenbelt every day because they cannot live in the city. Um, we can use, we've used this legislation mm. before in the past uh, to solve things. The same could be done in London. London is an incredibly low, dense, very large city compared to other mega cities on the planet. Um, there isn't a, a physical geographical problem with how you could actually increase the amount of property in London. And you probably need to. Because, you know, all megacities are growing. Mm. You know, unless we really, really muck things up, we should expect London to become a bigger city in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, the other thing you up. could do is copy is this little region called Wales. <laughs> and uh, they, obviously, they, they have you know, a certain level of devolution, not as much as kind of Stormont or you know, Scotland. But they've, uh, I think they might have actually ended right to buy now. Um and they brought in a different homelessness duty. So um, it means that basically if you go to a local council and say, I'm homeless, they have a duty to house you and they will house you and they will do it as soon as possible. Whereas still, you know, at the moment, if you go to a, you know, a council in in England, then you will be given a point, you know, you, you, you're given points. So if you're, you know, pretty much if you are a single male, then you're quite low down, yeah. and you know, and even even though Bob Blackman has brought in this bill that's supposed to help, there's no money with it. Uh, and, and this, this is isn't Wales. I mean, Europe is where the best examples are, but this isn't far away in Scotland. Mm -hmm. You know, Scotland since devolution. Before devolution, you had some of the worst housing conditions in the whole of Western Europe, in parts of Glasgow and Shettleston. And it was only devolution that actually meant that the demolition of of things was done well. It was done in a caring way. It was improved uh, dramatically, and the Scottish uh, government also changed the law 
so that letting agencies couldn't make people mm. laugh anymore. They changed the law over over who was who was homeless and who wasn't. Um, we're just so myopic, sitting in London and sitting in England. The tragedy is that all around us, in almost every direction you go, people are finding a way of doing it better, and we're sitting here going, how do we solve this problem? What on earth can we do? We must think about it ourselves. England is terrible, and it's actually quite embarrassing when you look at it. It is, it is. I mean, th- so there are a couple of questions I, I wanted to ask. We've got eight minutes left. Um, the, one of them was just about housing quality um, and just how, how you know, the, I mean, there's a real striking mm. problem with housing quality. It's been on the, the agenda since Grenfell in terms of kind of sprinklers, mm. but you also get these kind of slightly reactionary campaigns about sort of create streets and things like that. Mm. And the other question was about um, foreign ownership, which g- comes up when people talk about mm. housing problems, especially in London, the I- you know the idea being that oh, it's just you know rich foreigners buying up mm. um, all, all, all of the kind of central London properties, and I, I, my uh, my fear is that that shades into xenophobia rather than conversation about capital. But maybe we can roll both of those questions into the more exciting one, which is about housing policy after the Red Dawn. Mm. So <laughs> beyond rent controls. Um, and beyond just kind of doing just enough, um, are there past examples or lost policy histories we should look towards? What would be radical here rather than piecemeal? I think radical would be a mass house building program again, because one of the things we've had is obviously a lot of it's been sold off. And also there's been a lot of managed decline. So obviously when we had the initial big, you know, house building uh, schemes, that was because we had slums. Mm. And I think we're getting to the point now where a lot of private rented accommodation is really poor quality. It's very, very poor in terms of insulation. It's not necessarily safe. So I think we need to look at safety, especially post-Grenfell. Think about rebuilding uh, a lot of housing. Um, I think I think you, you need to look at estates that are mixed. So where you have, you know, people of all different tenures, you have, uh, you know, schools and, and, and hospitals and kind of shops really built into it. So it actually works as a society. But I also think that we should have um, a kind of a, a bill of rights for housing. So you have a right to X, Y and Z. You have a right to uh, tenancy. You have a right to demand, uh, you know, repairs, etc. Whereas at the moment, you know, if you have uh, an unsafe property, you can you can contact your council and ask environmental health to look into it. They've got no money. They're not going to come around. Mm. I had uh, dodgy wiring in a flat I lived in three years ago, and I was told there was an eighteen-month waiting list for for someone to come around and see whether or not uh, our flat would catch fire because our landlord yeah. wouldn't do anything. But I had no rights because there was no money. The other big one for Red Dawn, there's a great irony about this. Is, is that one of our biggest housing problems is, is that we have an ageing population. Now, that's a success, but we don't have housing stock designed for it. So we have lots of people in their 70s and 80s living alone in three-bed family homes because there's nowhere else they can go. They often can't actually afford to heat uh, these homes. Now, a progressive government would look at European-style apartments very near to where these homes are because all your friends are local, mm. um, and that would free up the three-bedroom mm. houses. It's a really fast win, but it, it's it's accommodation for people as we age. It's wheelchair access, it's flat, it's not stairs, and it's near to where people already are. And the irony is that the generation who need this housing are the generation who actually have voted in the Conservative government and the generation who voted for Brexit, which is going to give us a hell of an economic problem, which is going to make it hard to do these things. Mm -hmm. But it's not impossible to do great things when you don't have much money. The classic example is the National Health Service. Mm. We partly bought it in because we couldn't afford anything else because private health and charity health is expensive. 
I mean, housing's expensive when you look at how much housing benefit we're paying. But equally, I I mean, one big problem with the aging population is that housing associations were planning to build a lot of supported housing. So exactly the kind of housing you talk about is wheelchair accessible. Um, you have people living in small flats, but they have people who will come around and look after them. They have uh, friends around them. And obviously the, um, the local housing allowance means that actually housing associations can't afford to run supported housing anymore because they only get a certain amount of money for it. And then when you look at Brexit, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a, you know brilliant because all of a sudden we're not going to have people building because after the financial crash in 2008, we stopped building and you know we didn't have people training up to be bricklayers. We didn't have people you know training up uh, you know in order to build housing. So we had to import people who, you know from Eastern Europe mm. who could build, yeah. and they're leaving. I've, I've spoken yeah. to so many um, you know councils at the moment who say they're struggling to find builders because every, everybody feels you know unwanted and they're leaving. So this, but this does help the progressive policies because you're getting to a point where unless you begin to do something radically different, things are going to get much worse for people who are middle income. We're about to see an mm. influx of people coming back from Malta and Spain and Portugal who are only just eking an existence out there, mm. um, who need their winter payments because it actually <laughs> means they can pay the rent. When they come back to Britain, we don't have the housing for them or the hospital accommodation. Mm. Um, the scale of the problem is huge and it's getting bigger. But that is an opportunity that tells you you have to vote for something very different because otherwise things are going to get much, much worse. Uh, I just wanted to point listeners towards a really great article on Labour List of all places, which is not something I would otherwise say. <laughs> it's been guest edited by John Trickett recently, um, and it's by Owen Hathaway, which is looking back towards some kind of historic solutions. Um, Comrade Hathaway. Um, <laughs> and, and he points out that, you know, one of the things that we might look at is kind of direct labour organisations, which is, you know, maybe kind of municipally directed, mm. and it might have to be the responsibility of councils in terms of putting together a national building service as well mm. maybe as a national housing service um or, or even in the past we just had lots of very small building firms which is what germany has you know we have an oligopoly of just a few incredibly rich building firms at the moment um there's an enormous amount we can do the great news is that we do things so badly that we can look almost anywhere <laughs> for better examples of of how to do it and it's in the interests of so many of us now to do this it's not just in the interest of the poorest that we house ourselves better. It's in the interest of almost everybody but the extremely idle rich. We need NH NHS 2.0, the National Housing Service. Great paper on that recently out from UCL, um, which looked at universal basic services. We don't have time mm. to discuss it now, but you can uh, find a short discussion of that on the navaramedia.com website, um, where uh, myself and Michael Walker discussed the report along with a kind of Keynesian turn for the IMF uh, on Monday. Uh, last question to you both. One demand, one demand that you would like to see taken up by housing activists and perhaps by the left, both within and beyond Parliament, that they don't already have on the agenda, what would it be? Build more council housing. Build more council housing and... Uh, Decriminalise squatting again. Decriminalise squatting again. Yes, the awful <laughs> clause of the Legal Aid, Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act, uh, which, uh, by, which Danny uh, very, very kindly helped with uh, uh, the attempt to block, but, but we, of course, failed. Uh, thank you both. You've been phenomenal guests. Thank uh, you. It was great to have you, and I hope you'll both join us again soon. This has Thanks. been Navara Media. Uh, I have been James Butler, and I will see you same time, same place next week. Bye-bye. 
This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.